0: on Building Abundant Success on Facebook. That was the legendary Darlene Love, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. That is Darlene's signature song, Baby Please Come Home. She sings that every year on the David Letterman Show. Of course, you know her and her voice throughout the last five decades singing with many of rock and roll's finest. This is an awesome interview to end our year. Again, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays from me, Sabrina Marie, and Building Abundant Success. What about um, some of the bigger people that you work with? You said that no one was big, of course, like they have been, you know, the music industry has evolved over the decades, but one of the big African-American singers that she actually did some backup for was pretty big in that he wanted to actually own a piece of his career, the late Sam Cooke. Can you tell us a little bit about him?
1: Right, but see, even with that,
0: because I knew Sam Cooke when he was in gospel, Mm -hmm. uh,
1: because I started out in gospel, so... They were big, but they didn't seem as big to us then. Like, you know, when you say big, you know, they were making like $5,000 a week, which was a lot of money back then. Mm -hmm. Uh But they didn't have the superstar status like people do today. Mm. Uh, Believe me when I tell you, they were more of great singers to us more than superstars. Okay. Uh, The superstars started coming in with, you know, like Elvis Presley, Tom Jones. Then um, when we, you know, we started out with Lou Adler, who was a record producer, with, uh, Herb Albert, and they were just starting out. Matter of fact, they were partners, Herb Albert and, and Lou Adler. And we did a lot of work for them trying to get their careers going as producers.
0: Wow. um You don't think if he had lived, he would have been big? Who? You don't think if Sam had lived? He would have been big. Was he on the crest of his career? He was on the crest
1: of his career, but he was changing. He was doing something that nobody was doing yet. He decided to become a producer and own his own music.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, at that time, was like, you can't own your own music. Who do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> wow. And he was starting to produce other acts. Mm-hmm. You know, he saw where the money was. Mm-hmm. He was still working. You know, he was, he's, you know, he was still doing his thing but he also was finding out the other part of the business. Mm
0: -hmm. Violencing,
1: writing, Mm -hmm. you know, owning your own material, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to safeguard all of that. Because that, in the end, is really where all the money is. People that are wealthy today, like, you know, when you talk about songwriters, Mm -hmm. they're wealthy today because they held on to their publishing. Anybody that that records their records, You know they get paid every time their record is played on the radio Mm -hmm. and that's all over the world (laughs) yes indeed you know I mean they have people who monitor all that stuff so it's not just in California or New York it's the United States plus the rest of the world that plays people's records every time those records get played they get paid every time somebody wants to record their records you have to license them from these people and it can cost you anywhere from eight to $10,000 per song that you put on your album, if it's somebody else's. Wow. They never are poor. <laughs> but, you know, also it's, it's like one of the, you have to always keep on it. You know, who's doing it? You have to have people all, always monitoring it. Mm-hmm. And that's what Sam Cooke was doing. This was in the 50s, which was
0: unheard of. Wow. And, you know, uh, today now we have... Uh Many people, whether they be rock, roll, rap, they own their music, they own their image, they own everything. So you're the runner of that. Yeah,
1: because when I uh, I, I did my live uh, DVD, Mm -hmm. uh, the mechanicals just to do the CD was like $5,000 for each song that I put on there that was somebody else's. And then to get the mechanical rights to do the DVD was $10,000. Whoa. (laughs) So I'm saying when you do somebody else's song, if it's not yours, you have to pay for it. Because even if you don't get it right away, they will come after you later because they'll find out about it. Our businesses with the Internet and and all that stuff now, they can catch you quicker than they did, you know, 20 years ago.
0: How did you get to Phil Spector? How did he find out about you? I was a backup singer in L.A. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, I worked for his partner, but I didn't know at the time it was his partner. His partner was Lester Sill. Mm-hmm. And we're doing. He was a record producer in L.A., and uh, he he said that his partner was coming to to New, uh, California, and he had this record that he wanted to do and get it out in a hurry because he knew it was going to be a hit. Mm-hmm. He introduced me to Phil, and with a few days, Phil taught me the song, and uh, within a few days, uh, we were in the recording studio. Uh, he wanted me to get some singers together. We got uh, his partner got all the the end musicians. Who ended up calling themselves the Wrecking Crew, mm-hmm. uh, and we went into the studio and recorded "He's a Rebel." <laughs> wow, that's how I met him.
0: You were saying that, uh, of course, uh, not knowing or <laughs> that you would actually be the crystals, not the you know blossoms or solo act. How did that go? Isn't that kind of confusing in there? How did you feel at that time when that was going on? Well, when I went in to do "He's a Rebel,"
1: I went in knowing it wasn't going to be my record. I just went in to do it as a as as, as a as a record. Okay. Uh, with my group. And, uh, I knew it wasn't going to be mine. I just went in and I just charged him triple scale to do the lead vocal on it rather okay. than just, just charging regular scale, you know, right. for, uh, doing backup. Mm-hmm. You know, we got paid as, I got paid as a backup singer and I got paid, a, paid as a lead singer. So I made somewhere around $1,500, which back in 1962 was a whole lot of money. Wow. And I didn't think it was going to be a hit. What did
0: I know? (laughs) Hey, but now it's a classic. Now it's a classic, right. Now it's a classic. I was looking at some of your work on Shindig. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about those times?
1: Well, Shindig was fun because um, the producer was uh, a guy named Jack Good from London. Mm -hmm. And um, he wanted, we had been working with Jackie DeShannon. And he came to this club and saw us and he saw how great we were backing her up and singing lead. And so he asked us, he told us that he was coming to America and he was going to do this rock and roll show called Shindig. And would we be interested in doing it? And we said, sure, why not? And okay. uh, about six or seven months later, we got this call to go and do this television show called Shindig. And wow. uh, that's how we actually got that show, because we were working with Jackie and Shannon.
0: It seems like a lot of fun if you, you look at some of the clips from the, you know, the Shindig uh, uh, volumes. It's a lot of fun to look at some of the, the uh, performers and people that uh, you think uh, like a Billy Preston. I thought he came out much later than uh, the 60s. I had no idea he was an actor yes. for that. and most
1: people don't even realize Leon Russell was one of the shindogs who played piano on Shindig. Oh, my heavens, I didn't know that. And he played on all of the Phil Spector songs. Plus everything that he
0: did, you know, after he left that era and started his own career. Who were some of the other players behind, um, Spectre? I know that Sonny and Shara were two. Yeah, but well,
1: we had Leon, or we had, well, we had Leon, of course. Uh, a lot of unknown people at that time, Glenn Campbell. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, mostly all of those musicians that Phil used ended up becoming very famous, having on their own solo careers. Our drummer, Hal Blaine, Al DeLauri, uh these are names you might not really know, but these people ended up having solo careers as musicians. You know, they started making their own records, and everybody became very, very successful after that Phil Spector craze because they were the musicians to hire, and they played for everybody. What was it like? Well, if we could have... Did as many sessions as they did. We probably would have been as wealthy as they were, too. What was it like working with the king? Oh, fantastic, because he was such a great guy, very, very uh shy. Uh, but once he opened up to us, because we t- I told him I was a gospel singer, and my background was gospel, boy, that just opened up a whole new world for him, because we used to get off to the side with his guitar and, and sing gospel songs, so... We we ended up having a real connection, and when we did his um, 1968 comeback special, we weren't supposed to be in it. We were just supposed to be singing with the rest of the choir, but then he told them he wanted us actually in the gospel segment that he did in the video, which was wonderful. So we not only appeared with him in a movie called Change of Habit, but we were in his video that he did for his 1968 comeback special also.
0: I mentioned USP, Unique Selling Proposition, in the 70s. Uh, I was reading in your book that uh, you were doing some other work and you heard your uh, baby please come home on the radio and realized, wait a minute, I shouldn't be here. Can you tell us a little bit about that time? What happened to you in the 70s? Well, what happened
1: after um, the Phil Spector craze and me going through all my changes with Phil and him not recording me, and Shindig went off the air, and we started going out on the road traveling with other people like the Righteous Brothers, you know, uh, with Nancy Sinatra, and, you know, but when I decided to come back home, uh, nobody would hire me to work because by then I wanted to start my solo career, and I wasn't a crystal, even though I had recorded their biggest hits, their number one records. <laughs> I couldn't go out as a crystal but I did not even want to go out as a crystal, so that wasn't anything. So I had to find work wherever I could find it. You know, every now and then a session would come up or somebody would hire me. So I started doing day work. And, uh, out in Beverly Hills. And, uh, I had a, a Mercedes, so I wasn't going to sell it. It was paid for.
0: <laughs> okay, I don't mind it. So
1: I would drive my car to Beverly Hills to go go, go to work. But then when I'd find the house, I would go and park my car down at the bottom of the hill because I didn't think the lady would hire me if she knew I had a Mercedes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I would park around the corner, and I would uh, walk up to the house, <laughs> and I did day work. And uh was doing the holiday season, I was cleaning uh, her bathroom, and down the hall I hear playing Christmas Baby Please Come Home. And I looked in the mirror and I said, this is not what I'm supposed to be. I have a gift that God has given me, and I need to do all I can to use it. And, you know, you get into those little funks, uh-huh. you know, you start having your little pity parties, but the whole idea is to come out of it. <laughs> Don't stay in it forever, And especially if you have something to give to the world, if you have a gift to give.
0: So and you also that, realized that you had fans that uh, were coming up in the music world that uh, really, really were diehard fans, like the Bruce Springsteens and many others. Were you surprised at that?
1: I was not only surprised, I was shocked. <laughs> because I didn't realize that they looked at that music as the beginning of rock and roll and Phil Spector. He made such a name for himself with those, with those records mm-hmm. that my name went right along with his. Even though he tried to stamp my name out of existence, because it was all about Phil Spector and Phil Spector's music and his records, it's still the people listen to the voice that was on those those records. Mm-hmm. And even as big as Phil got, they still hooked my name to Phil Spector more so than the Crystals, even the Ronettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but darling, love, name hung on with Phil Spector's. it's amazing because even in my speech the other night at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I actually thanked Phil Spector because I said I thanked him for the genius of him realizing that my voice went along with his his music. Mm -hmm. And then here we are 50 years later, and I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That was because of those songs I did with him. Nothing else. Those songs and then all the body of work that I've done over the last 50 years.
0: Well, you mentioned your body of work with Phil Spector, but a lot of listeners to my show and just listeners in general, iTunes, wherever this is going across the world will know you from the lethal weapon movies. Tell me how it was (laughs) working with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover and well, how did you, how did you get there? You know what? I think the biggest thing I
1: did is a lot of times when you're in a funk or in a hole, you have to make a decision to make a move. Mm-hmm. And I made a decision to move from Los Angeles to New York. Awesome. And it's never usually done that way. It's usually done the opposite way. But I felt I had to get out of California and start a new, new, a fresh start. And by then I had known a, Steve, a little Steven, Van aunt. And he mm-hmm. talked me into moving to New York. Mm-hmm. And it like kind of started my career all over again. There was places for me to work in New York. No one had ever seen Darling Love work before. Matter of fact, they thought I was a figment of Phil Spector's imagination. <laughs> Whoa. They thought it was maybe one of the runettes or one of the Crystals or somebody, but nobody had actually seen me work. So once I came to New York and started working the club scene in New York, the press got a hold to it and just mm-hmm. took it and ran with it. She exists, and she can sing, and she looks good, too.
0: Yeah, So the,
1: the agent, who was a fan, uh-huh. uh, came down to see me at the bottom line, and called my uh, manager and asked him if I'd be interested in being in a movie with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover if they were getting ready to film in California. And I know, had I not been living here, I never would have gotten that movie. I didn't even know that I had already had the part. I uh, sat down and talked to Dick Donner, who was the director. Uh-huh. And uh, I talked to him, you know, just like I'm talking to you right now. And he said, well, as far as I'm concerned, you have the part. And I said, yeah, right, sure. <laughs> It's never that easy, don't I have to audition? And I guess he said to himself, that's what you're doing right
0: now. <laughs>
1: awesome. So I ended up getting the role, you know, because they liked what they saw on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, they figured I could do what I had to do, you know, and he hired me. And uh, I didn't know we were going to do four of them mm-hmm. when I did the first one, but there we were all those years later, it took us twelve years to do the four. So it's like we grew up. The kids grew up and we all grew up with um Mel and Danny. <laughs>
0: awesome. You know, for the past, uh, I guess it's a couple decades, or even probably longer, you've been reading in Christmas at the Letterman Show. And I wanted you to let us know what you're doing now. I know there's a a movie in the works, My Name is Love, which I'll be excited to go see. Uh, Yes. What you're doing now?
1: I'm so excited about that. We just finished doing last, uh, this past February. We did a a live DVD of my um, concert, Uh, My Mm -hmm. Name is Love. And uh, now we're busy putting a script together mm-hmm. for uh, the movie. Which is so exciting. We're so excited about that.
0: <laughs> wow, it's gonna be interesting to see yourself played on the big screen, but I know you've had that uh, you know, that longing for some time. You have any ideas as to where and where what might start in your life? Are you gonna start from the beginnings of the music career, or just highlight certain areas or
1: we you know, we uh, had a script and thank God we did a table read just to see what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And we decided we weren't going to go too young. We're going to hit on, you know, part of my life as um, a child because I have to, you know, just to let people know what went on uh, in my life as a uh, Christian, coming from a Christian family. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't understand. You come from a Christian family and rock and roll or rhythm and blues, none of that music was allowed in our house. Wow. So we need to tell that story and how I ended up being in this business. So we're thinking about starting around, you know, somebody that could play a 16-year-old and then, you know, come all the way up. And if we had to find somebody younger, you know, like 5 or 10 years old, you know, it Mm -hmm. would only be one person. So we're looking at just trying to find two people to play the whole role.
0: Awesome. I wanted to end with this question. You um, started as a background singer, but were known uh, basically by fans that grew up during that time, kids who were just buying your records, and they always thought of you as a lead singer. Uh, in your whole career now, what are some of the things that you've learned, like maybe three key points that led to your longevity because there are many people over the years that had great careers, big hits. You don't hear about them, but you still hear about Darlene Love and you have every decade since you started your career in some capacity. Well, you know what? I
1: think you have to be, number one, you have to really be serious and dedicated to what you want to do. Uh, I didn't want to be a doo-wop singer. You know, like, and do the little doo-wop circuits and go out on the stage and sing your two, three songs and then go up. I always wanted, I always loved performing. And I'm just starting on my third song. I need to do a whole show so people can see my whole thing. So I had to fight real hard to do that. You know, not do a doo-wop circuit, but do my show because mm-hmm. I knew I was more than that. Uh, you have to create yourself, reinvent yourself yourself. Uh, I never thought about doing Broadway, but then when I got the call to go and do a Broadway show, I went and did a Broadway show. When I got the call to go and do the Lethal Weapon movies, they didn't scare me. I figured they asked me to do this movie so they knew I was capable of doing it. Oh, and then the other thing was, as we were doing uh, Leader of the Pack in in um, New York, that uh, Paul Schaefer played Phil Spector, and that's when David Letterman saw me. So every year, I do Christmas Baby, Please Come Home on his show because that's David's favorite Christmas song. Awesome. So you have to continue to put yourself in this different situations and put yourself with people who can also help you. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Van Zandt and, and, and um, Bruce Springsteen started Champion Me about 10 years ago. Awesome. And... I, I I do things with them, you know. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, 25th anniversary at the Garden. Bruce Springsteen called me and asked me to do that with him. There was no one on that show that was not already in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but me. But you awesome. have to, and you you cannot be afraid. You if if people think of you enough that you're good enough for them to do things like that, you can't be afraid. You have to do it, and you have to do it. You know, you can't be afraid to be on stage with Bruce or with Aretha or with whoever because they can't do what you do, and you're not, you're not trying to do what they do. You have to be true to who you are. And unfortunately, we do have to re, keep reinventing ourselves. And the way the business is today, you can reinvent yourself because there's so many things out there you can do today. When I was first coming up, it was nothing but records. That's all it was. Mm-hmm. but now there's the internet oh yeah tv cell phones
0: iPhones. I and it'll continue on
1: <laughs> and it's going to
0: only get bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. it, yeah the world's becoming more global i couldn't end this uh interview without asking when you were on stage at the rock and roll hall of fame what was going through your mind? I know everybody has a, something they rehearse before they get there on stage, but when you're looking out in that audience and people are looking at you, what were you thinking? When I got on that
1: stage, after Betty Midler gave me this unbelievable introduction, I had to stand there for a few seconds just to gather myself,
0: mm-hmm. and I
1: took this, the deepest breath you could ever take, and I just looked across the room, and I just said, Here I am. This is where I wanted to be, but people put me here. Mm -hmm. My peers put me up here where I am. I did the work, but my peers put me up here. And I am so thankful and so humbled by this. What I thought about most while I was up there is that when you win a Grammy, you win it for one song. When you win a Tony, it's for one play. Mm
0: -hmm. When you
1: uh, Oscar is for one movie. But winning that award is for your whole body of work. It's your movies, it's your singing, it's TV, it's everything, for that one thing. They call it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it embodies everything that I've done for 50 years. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I said, okay, Lord, let me tell these people how I feel about this. Uh
0: Yes, indeed. And that's actually what was going through my mind. Awesome, and you know the generations you've inspired over the years, and your music, has, you know, has touched uh, generations of learning, and will continue to do. So. Yes, so I know it. Uh, like I said, it must have been so monumentous to think me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. it's great, and you know,
1: I think as you lead up to it, you, your desire is not to win awards. Your 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 desire is just to do your job. You know, mm-hmm. do give them people the gifts. That you you give him and you hope maybe one day. Oh well, I, maybe one, I would like to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, one day I hope so. <laughs> you remember, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wasn't around when I first started singing. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah. it's only twenty five years old.
0: <laughs> right, that uh, we now realize with uh, the beginnings of rock and roll, how it's inspired a, mm-hmm. you know, generations, culture, etc.